0: Um, but it is a great privilege to be here with you, and um, thinking about the last song we, sung, we we just sang, hearing the voices, hearing you guys sing, great is the faithfulness of God, um, and just knowing that everybody, all of our stories are different, but ultimately they're all the same, and how comforting it is to gather together, to sing praises together, but also to sing and encourage one another About God's faithfulness. So praise God for his faithfulness. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Genesis 35. Last week, we looked at the first half of this chapter. We saw Jacob's return to Bethel, um, along with the confirmation of the covenant promises that they have been passed down to Jacob. This week, we'll be looking at verses 16 through 29. Um, And here we're going to see Jacob's return to his father's house along with the deaths of Rachel and Isaac. In chapter 35, there are three deaths um, mentioned here. We have Deborah, which we saw last week, who is Rebecca's nurse. This week we'll see the death of Rachel, who is Jacob's beloved wife. And then we'll see the death of Isaac, who is Jacob's father. And while death permeates this chapter... Say we have three deaths mentioned to us here. We'll also see hope, joy. We'll see the birth of Benjamin. We'll see with Isaac that he's gathered up to his people, not to the dead. But as we think about this birth of Benjamin here, which we'll see, which comes in the midst of Rachel's death, we're reminded that childbearing is a prevalent theme in the book of Genesis. And this should not surprise us at all, because God has promised to bring forth redemption through a child, through one who would be born from the offspring of the woman, from the offspring as we see traced down of Abraham, of Isaac, and Jacob, and this is none other than Jesus Christ. So, as we mentioned last week... Um, All things point us to Christ. The scriptures are are cratering towards Christ. The Old Testament is, is full of shadows and types of Christ. So it should not surprise us when we see semblances, prefigurements of Christ all throughout the scriptures. So with that in mind, let's go ahead and read our passage. Let's read verses 16 through 29 of chapter 35. So then they journeyed from Bethel, When they were still some distance from Ephrath, Rachel went into labor, and she had hard labor. And when her labor was at its hardest, the midwife said to her, Do not fear, for you have another son. And as her soul was departing, for she was dying, she called his name Ben-Oni. But his father called him Benjamin. So Rachel died, and she was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. And Jacob set up a pillar over her tomb. It is the pillar of Rachel's tomb, which is there to this day. Israel journeyed on and pitched his tent beyond the tower of Adair. While Israel lived in that land, Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. Now the sons of Jacob were twelve. The sons of Leah: Reuben. Jacob's firstborn, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun, the sons of Rachel, Joseph, and Benjamin, the sons of Bilhah, Rachel's servant, Dan, and Naphtali, the sons of Zilpah, Leah's servant, Gad, and Asher. These were the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Padan Aram. And Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre, or Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron. Where Abraham and Isaac had sojourned. Now the days of Isaac were 180 years, and Isaac breathed his last, and he died and was gathered to his people, old and full of days, and his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. Says the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we come before your throne by the blood of Jesus Christ. We come to you through the Son, by the Holy Spirit, and we bring our petitions to you. We've offered up praises, we confess our sin, and now we bring our petitions, we make them known to you, and so I pray for your help. I pray that you would give us knowledge, understanding, and wisdom. I pray for humility pray that you would teach us that we are not the source of truth. We're certainly not the source of good works. So teach us your truth. For your word is truth. And stir up within us hearts to do good. Help us to consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Help us to be mindful of one another and guard us against the lies and deceptions of the world. Deliver us from pride. Help us to live lives that are marked by humility. No, oh, I pray that we would teach our children the same things. In our homes, in our church, we would teach our children to flee pride, to humble themselves before you, O oh God. And I pray that you will bring forth fruit from vacation Bible school that we had this past week, and and to bring forth fruit from the labors, the week in, week out labors of Sunday school, of catechism, and the daily labors of our parents in their homes. Help us to teach these children to walk in your ways. Help us to set before them the gospel. Help us to be a testimony of grace and we know they don't need perfect parents. They need parents who remind them of their need for Christ. Who when we sin against them, we would be quick to ask their forgiveness. We would be quick to humble ourselves before our our little children, asking their forgiveness. Oh, that the gospel might be permeated both here in our midst and in our homes. And I pray that you would save our children. I pray that they might grow up to be faithful church members, to live peaceful and quiet lives, as your word calls us, but that they would be bold in their proclamation of Christ. Their lives might be peaceful and quiet, but that they would not be silent. They'd be like the apostles, that we would be like the apostles who... Say, how can we help but speak about what we have seen and heard? How can we help but keep these truths to ourselves? So Father, I pray you would give us a boldness to proclaim the glory of Christ and it's his glory that I pray that you would reveal to us this morning through the preaching of your word. Oh, give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear. Help us to see wonderful things in your word. I pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. So on page five of your worship guide, go ahead and turn there if you'd like. See, I've divided this passage into three sections. Verses 16 through 21, we see Jacob, he's leaving Bethel. He's going to the Tower of Adair. Um, This tower It would be a watchtower for shepherds to see um, their flock. But he's going to this Tower of Adair, and on his journey here, he loses his wife to death. And then his son, Benjamin, is born. So her second son is born. Second section is kind of an interlude, verses 22 through 26. Here we have a list of Jacob's sons. There's one insert here um, about Reuben that just reminds us of the the sin in his home, the the chaos, the turmoil in his home. But ultimately, this section reminds us that that Jacob has 12 sons. Uh, God has blessed him with these 12 sons, and these 12 sons will then be the focus of Genesis 37 through 50. And so after this interlude, so to speak, We conclude this section, which has been called the Generations of Isaac, with Jacob coming home to see his father once again, and then Isaac dies. Um, He lived a full life. He was old and full of days, and then his sons will bury him. So overall, this passage concludes the life of Isaac in relation to Jacob, Remember, this section that we've been in is titled or labeled the generations of Isaac. Isaac has not been the primary um, human figure here. It's been Jacob. And so really, it's, we see the life of Isaac concluding in relation to Jacob. Um, and so while this is the generations of Isaac, we haven't seen Isaac in a while. The last time we saw Isaac was when he was sending Jacob off to Padan Aram. And so... In chapter 28, we saw him sending him away, blessing him, and now we see him once again, but we really don't see anything from him except for the fact that Jacob came to him and then we see his death here. And as Jacob returns, remember, he was sent away really with nothing but a staff in his hand, and now he comes back with many possessions and a quiver full of children, and so while this chapter reminds us of the, of, well, it tells us about the reunion of Isaac and Jacob, this passage here is bookended with two deaths, reminding us of the tragedy of sin and death. But as we'll see this morning, there's hope of a coming day when our mourning will be turned to joy. We've sung about that joy. That joy is not something we have to wait for. That joy is something we experience today, but there is coming a day when our joy will truly be full. The mourning that we experience today is real, but there's a hope of a new day. In the new covenant, God promises to turn our mourning into joy. But as I say, that joy is not something only to be had in the future. That joy is something that we gain a taste of today. I would argue we gain a taste of that as we gather together here with one another, as we are listening to the word together, as we hear the word read and preached, as we sing together, as we pray together, as we fellowship together, we gain a taste of that joy that is to be had on that day. So my plan this morning is to first of all walk through this passage And then after we walk through to consider the connection between this passage and the new covenant by looking at Jeremiah 31 and then Matthew 2. So let's go ahead and pick up with verse 16 of Genesis chapter 35. The first words we read here are, then they journeyed from Bethel. So remember, last week we saw Jacob returning to Bethel in the first half of chapter 35. He led his family to get rid of their household gods and then they go to Bethel and they make an altar unto the Lord. And while there, God confirmed the promises to Jacob. These covenant promises were confirmed to him. He confirmed the promise that Jacob would be a great nation. Kings would come forth from his offspring. God confirmed the promise of land that will be inherited by Jacob's offspring. And he confirmed the name change from Jacob to Israel. And one thing you'll note if if you're looking and paying attention, the scriptures will go back and forth between Jacob and Israel. Same guy, same man, but Israel is the name that is given to the nation who comes forth from his descendants. The 12 tribes, his 12 sons will become 12 tribes. And so as we see here today in this passage, the birth of Benjamin, will now see the significance of Jacob's sons, 12 tribes who will be the tribes of Israel. And so, as God promised in verse 11, God said to him, I am God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you. We're reminded when we think about Jacob's sons, that is beginning to come to pass. Not complete, obviously. I mean, he still, in the grand scheme of things, has a small, relatively small family, but they will become a multitude. These 12 sons will have sons and their sons will have sons. And so they will become a great nation. That was the promise made to Abraham back in chapter 12. But you know the obstacle to that promise? Abraham's wife was barren, so they were childless. And to add what seems like insult to injury, God kept saying, you're going to have a multitude of children. You can't even count, like the stars of the sky, the, the, the dust of the earth. And after many years of waiting, God brought forth a child for Abraham and Sarah. His name was Isaac. And Isaac's wife, too, would experience many years of barrenness. But God would eventually open her womb and brought forth children for Isaac, two boys named Esau and Jacob. And now with Jacob, the the floodgates are, are seemingly open. And with the birth of Benjamin, he has 12 sons. They have sons. Their sons have sons. And so this promise that God made that he confirmed to Jacob back in verse 11, this promise of becoming a great nation is beginning to come to pass. It's the beginning of that promise opening up. And so this trip to Bethel that we've seen, as they went to Bethel, that confirmed to Jacob, who is Israel, the promise that God will make his descendants into a great nation. And after these promises were confirmed to him, they worshiped the Lord, and then as we see in 16 again, they journeyed from Bethel, and they were on their way to Ephrath. As you can see in verse 19, Ephrath is Bethlehem. This is an ancient name for it, I mean, you'll see Bethlehem, Ephrathah in Scripture as well. So this is the ancient name for Bethlehem. And as they're on their way to Ephrath, we see at the end of verse 16 that Rachel went into labor, and she had hard labor. It was severe. Um, as many of our ladies know, labor pains are real. That's why, on uh, just a side note, this is why I... I always encourage young men whose wives are pregnant to take good care of your pregnant wives because God has seen fit to give them the strength to birth our babies, not us. Now, as we think about this with Rachel here, going into labor, we see the labor being hard and painful. We don't know what childbirth would have been like without the fall. No children were born before the fall. So we don't know what that would be like, but we know in Genesis 3 that God told the woman, I will surely multiply, multiply your pain and childbearing, and in pain you shall bring forth children. And Rachel, Jacob's wife, is no stranger to this pain. She was in pain as she experienced a barren womb. Remember, she longed so greatly to have children, and she watched her sister Have child after child. And finally, the Lord answered her prayer, gave her a son whose name was Joseph. She named him Joseph, saying, may the Lord add to me another son. Rachel longed for children. Even after experiencing the pains of barrenness, the pains of childbirth, she desired to have another child sure many of our ladies would say, the pain is worth it when the baby is born. Christ, he said, as Barry read earlier, when a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for the joy or for joy that a human being has been brought into the world. As we must remember, because we live in a world that is, or a culture that is preaching the opposite, life is a gift from God. Life, when it begins, in conception, is a gift from God. Every baby born, every baby conceived and every baby born is a reminder of God's gift, of this precious gift That's why as we think about Genesis, think about Sarah, who longed to have children. She laughed when she gave birth to this boy. She laughed because of the joy. Many years of barrenness, laughter accompanied her delivery. Rachel longed for another son after many years of toil and pain. She longed for that joy that comes after the anguish. But now, as we see here with the birth of her second child, the labor pains are so severe. And so in verse 17, her midwife comes to her to comfort her. And she says, do not fear, for you have another son. Rachel's prayer has been answered. Remember, she named her son Joseph saying, may the Lord add to me another son. May he give me another son. And the Lord has heard her prayer. He has brought forth another son. And while this birth would certainly bring forth joy, it was paired with sorrow and mourning. Because as we see in verse 18, Rachel was dying, her soul was departing. And as she was dying, she called the name of her child Ben Oni. And if you have a footnote, it might say something like, Son of my sorrow. But as we read at the end of verse 18, Jacob called him Benjamin. Jacob would not call him Ben-Oni. He called him Benjamin, which means something like son of my right hand, son of my old age, or son of happiness. Essentially, Jacob, he pronounced the opposite of what Rachel intended. Rachel intended for her son to be known as the one who drained her strength from her. But Jacob, he would pronounce that his son was a good gift from God. He would not look at Benjamin as the one who took his beloved wife from him. Benjamin's birth was a blessing. It was a blessing, it was a gift. However, as we're reminded in verse 19, it was bittersweet because Rachel died after giving childbirth. You know, we're fortunate. We live in a land where death and childbirth is relatively uncommon. In 2021, the, maternity, the maternal mortality rate was 32 deaths per 100,000 births. That's not to minimize even the death of one mother in childbirth, but to say that childbirth in our land is relatively rare. But that's not always been the case. Even just a few hundred, even well, it's not even the case in other parts of the world, but it hasn't always been the case, especially in the ancient world. And that's the tragedy we have here. Rachel dies after giving birth to this precious baby boy. This is a tragedy, and we should feel the weight of this moment. And Jacob, later on in chapter 48, when he is recounting these things to his son, Joseph, he is going to tell him that when I came from Padon, to my sorrow, Rachel died in the land of Canaan. He says, to my sorrow, Rachel died. Some of you here can relate. You know the sorrow that Jacob felt for the loss of his beloved wife. Just as an aside for us as the church, let us be mindful of those who mourn. And let us mourn with those who mourn. That's what we've been called to as a body. As a church, because death is a painful reality of living under the curse. And so here in chapter 35, we have the joyful birth announcement of Jacob's 12th son, paired with the sorrowful death of his wife, Rachel. And as such, we see Jacob burying his wife on the way to Ephrath. And then in verse 20, he sets up a pillar over her tomb this will be a landmark to remember her. It's there to this day when uh, Moses would have been writing. It's also going to be there in the days of Samuel. But Jacob establishes this landmark, commemorating the life and the burial of Rachel. And then in verse 21, we see him journeying on. And he pitched his tent beyond the tower of Adair. So that brings us to the end of this section here. We see Jacob, his family, they're traveling from Bethel to this place that's beyond the tower of Adair. Adair is probably near Jerusalem. We see them traveling, but on his way, Rachel dies after giving birth to his 12th son. Remember, the deaths of Rachel and Isaac, they bookend this passage. We have Rachel's death, and then we have Isaac's death, but sandwiched in between is the list of Jacob's 12 sons. And this begins in verse 22, this section, while Israel lived in that land. So Israel, who is Jacob, he lived in this place. They pitched their tent beyond the Tower of Adair, and he lived here for an undesignated period of time. And then we see that Reuben, his firstborn son, went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine. It's quite possible that this was an attempt to usurp his father's authority, um, if you're familiar with your Bible, you'll know that in similar fashion, Absalom did this to his father David. In 2 Samuel 16, he goes into his father's concubines as an act of defiance, as an act signifying that he wanted to take his father's throne. And there's the possibility that Reuben's act was similar. But whether or not he had the same intentions as Absalom, this is certainly an act of defiance an act of rebellion against his father. Although it's not right for Jacob to have multiple wives and concubines, we talked about that in the weeks past, this is still an act of disrespect. This is dishonoring to his father. And this reminds us that Jacob's home is filled with turmoil, chaos. We really don't know what Jacob was like as a father. I guess this would have been a good Father's Day sermon last week. We really don't know what he was like. We know that he led his family to get rid of their idols, to cast out their foreign gods, but we really don't know what kind of father he was. What we do know is that his home is characterized by rivalry, wickedness, deceit, murderous rage, and defiance. And what this reminds us of once again, because as we've gone through Genesis, we see it over and over, we're reminded of this over and over, God's purposes of election are not based upon man. God set his eye on this family out of his good pleasure to make his power and his greatness known. And he will. He will make his power and his greatness known. He called this people to be a light to the nations. He planted them in the perfect place when the nations would pass through. They would see this nation. They would see this nation who's been redeemed by God. They would see this nation who's been called out from among the nations to worship the one true God. This nation was called to put away their former ways of life, to be a kingdom of priests, to be a holy nation. But you know the story. They kept turning their back to God. They kept turning back to their former way of life. They kept turning to the sins of the flesh. And instead of being a light to the nations, they actually became like the nations. Instead of beholding the one true God, they became transfixed by the false gods of the nations, but the purposes of God would not fail. He chose this nation to make himself known, and despite this nation, he will make himself known. In the book of Ezekiel, we see a common phrase characterizing God's actions. He sends his people into exile that they might know that he is the Lord their God. And when he judges the nations whom he used to judge this nation, he says he is doing this, that they might know that he is the Lord God. All the gods of the nations will be shown for what they really are. They will be shown to be nothing through God's work among this people. Remember, God is the one at work here. Nothing will thwart his purposes. He will work all things according to the counsel of his will. And so the sins of Jacob's sons will not prevent God's purposes from being fulfilled. And we're reminded of that very truth as we see and consider the sons of Jacob. We don't know what type of father Jacob was. We can imagine what type of father he was, partly because of what his sons become partly because of what his sons do. I mean, we've already seen, I mean, think a couple weeks ago, Simeon, Levi, massacred an entire people group. I mean, I was talking to, to someone the other day about, think about Levi. Who comes from Levi's descendants? The priest. This is a man who rose up and conquered, I mean, not conquered, massacred another nation in the name of the covenant sign. Using circumcision to to say, hey, go do this, and and then we'll marry with you. They deceived them and then wiped them out. God's going to raise up from that man the priesthood who were to make sacrifices on behalf of the nation? That right there ought to remind us that the priest we need is not one who comes from man. But think about this group. Reuben defies his dad. J, uh, uh, Simeon, Levi, massacre an entire people group. These are the sons of Jacob. These are the sons of Israel. Israel hears about this one at the end of verse 22 as we see, and he will deal with it, but that won't be till later in the book of Genesis. But after we see that Israel heard of Reuben's sin, we now have the sons of Jacob, Were 12. And the sons are going to be listed here beginning with Leah's sons, beginning with Reuben who is Jacob's firstborn, then Simeon and Levi who we mentioned, followed by Judah. We haven't seen much of Judah yet. We, We haven't seen him yet, but we will. We'll see him in Genesis 38. We'll see his sexual immorality. And think about that. Reuben, We've just seen what he's done. Simeon, Levi, we've already seen them. Judah will be sexually immoral. That's the first four sons born to Jacob. Now, this list here does not follow the same birth order that we saw back in chapters 29 and 30. This chapter will list them by the wives. So Leah, then Rachel, then their maidservants. And this is quite the bunch we have here. We've already talked about the first four sons, but just think about the rest. You might not know much about them, but think about this. In Genesis chapter 37, we're going to see all of the brothers, with the exception of Reuben and Benjamin, wanting to kill Joseph. But there's such a stand-up group that they say, you know what, instead of killing him, why don't we make some money off of selling him to slave traders? Could be worse. You might think that you were born into an imperfect family. Just be grateful you weren't born into this one. (laughs) Think about that. The 12 sons of Jacob listed here Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. The sons of Rachel, verse 24 Joseph, Benjamin, 25 the sons of Bilhah, Rachel's servant, Dan and Naphtali. 26, the sons of Zilpah, Leah's servant, Gad and Asher. These are the sons of Jacob. Tension, rivalry will characterize this family, but these are the sons whom God will prosper and make into a mighty nation. These are the sons who seemingly do all they can to add one obstacle in front of another to hinder or thwart the promises of God being fulfilled. But nothing will stop God. Nothing will stop God from fulfilling his purposes through these men. He will fulfill his purposes one way or another. And then after we read of this list, we see at the very end of verse 26, these were the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Padon Aram. Now, some of you might be thinking, wait a minute. Benjamin was not born in Paddan Aram. And you're correct. He was born in the land of Canaan. So, why does this say, why does it include Benjamin and say that he was born in Padanaram? Is this an error in Scripture? You might hear this sometimes. Someone might use this as a way to show that there's errors in the Bible, but there's not. This is not an error. This is a figure of speech. I might be erroneous in how I say this, but a synecdoche is, is, I believe, the word there that states that the part refers to the whole or vice versa. It's similar to saying Houston won the game. Obviously, The city of Houston, well, I guess, or or it'd be better to say Houston lost the game, right? The city of Houston lost the game, or Houston lost. But you know I'm not saying the city of Houston lost, right? The the whole city of Houston didn't play. I'm saying the Astros lost or the Dynamo. I'm, I'm not referring to the whole city. You get the idea. So this is not to be understood as an error, but rather to show that Jacob has 12 sons this is characteristic of the sons with the exception of one, of course, that have been born to him before he returned to his father. And this will serve as a contrast as we'll see next week because Esau's sons were born in the land of Canaan and he moves out. Jacob's sons were, were all but one born outside the land of Canaan, and he moves in. That's the idea that we'll see next week. It's more of a contrast than showing an error in Scripture, and it's just including the whole as they were born outside, and and Benjamin was born on his way back to his father, so in a sense, we can say this is correct, that they're born to him as he went to Paddan Aram before he returned home to his father. So after this list of Jacob's sons, of Jacob's children, Jacob finally returns to his father as we see in verses 27 through 29. We don't know how long he's been in the promised land prior to coming home, but here in verse 27, Jacob comes to his father Isaac at Mamre, or Kiriath Arba. So this is where Abraham sojourned, as we see in this, Abraham and Isaac, they sojourned here. Uh, This is the area west of Machpelah, if you remember that name. That's the burial site of Abraham. That's the burial site of Sarah, and that is also the burial site of Rebekah, and it will be the burial site of Isaac. So perhaps Isaac moved here after his wife died, we don't know, but Jacob now returns to him. So Jacob, remember, when he left his father's household, God appeared to him at Bethel, and Jacob made a vow. He said he would serve and follow the Lord if the Lord brought him back to his father's home in peace. So say what you will about Jacob's vow, but God has brought Jacob back to his father's house in peace. The trip home has been filled with turmoil and chaos. Jacob's life has seemingly been at stake on multiple occasions. His sons brought reproach upon the family, but here he is. He's returned to his father's house in peace. And while we don't read about it, while it doesn't say, I can just imagine the joy that this brought Isaac. That this brought Isaac in the last years of his life. As we see in verse 28, Isaac, he lived to be 180 years old. In verse 29, his days, he was old and full of days. He lived a long life before he died. He saw his son once again before he died. And then his sons, as we see at the end of verse 29, his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. I don't know, but I'm sure he heard the story about his sons being reconciled. I mean, Jacob and Esau, Esau wanting to murder Jacob, they've been reconciled to one another. And then they too come back together to bury their father. And so while this passage begins With the death of Rachel, it concludes with the the death of Isaac. With the death of Rachel, we saw she also gave birth to a child, and so there was a glimmer of hope. Her sorrow ceased as her life came to an end, but hope would not die, for children were still being born. And the birth of children ultimately reminds us of the promised one who will be born from the woman who will defeat the enemy of man and redeem man from his bondage. And here with Isaac's death, there's also a glimmer of hope. We read in verse 29, He breathed his last, he died, and he was gathered to his people. This phrase, gathered to his people, signifies the hope of resurrection. The phrase does not say that he was buried next to his dead, but that he was gathered to his people. One Jewish commentator notes, this phrase testifies to a belief that despite his mortality and perishability, man possesses an immortal element that survives the loss of death. Death is looked upon as a transition to an afterlife where one is united with one's ancestors. And in some way, this commentator, I would say, minimizes the greatest gain we have in death and that is God himself. But this commentator does signify from this phrase that he was gathered to his people that this signifies hope in death. Death is painful. It comes to us all. It's a foe we cannot escape. It's a foe that signifies the reality that we're all living under the curse. We're all sinners, therefore we all die. Therefore, death rightly stirs up within us deep emotions of sorrow and mourning. But while death is accompanied by sorrow and mourning, there will come a day when our mourning will be turned into joy. There is hope of a better day. Turn with me to Jeremiah 31. So in this chapter, the reason I come here is because Jeremiah will reference Rachel. Rachel will be used as an illustration of the mothers who mourn the loss of their children who were taken away into exile. And so look just at verse 15. Thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah. Lamentation and bitter weeping. So Ramah was a city of Benjamin. Remember, Benjamin is Rachel's second son. So Ramah is a city of Benjamin. Most likely, this was the burial site of Rachel. And so a voice is heard here. A voice of lamentation and bitter weeping was heard in Ramah. And we see in the next part of this verse that it's Rachel. It's Rachel who is weeping for her children. Remember, Rachel died many years prior. So what we have here is, is figuratively speaking, she's been raised up. She hasn't been raised up, but figuratively speaking, she has to represent women who are mourning the loss of their children. As Gordon Wenham comments in his Genesis commentary, for Jeremiah, Rachel could still be heard weeping at Ramah, not over her own death, but over the death of her children the death of her offspring, essentially, as they've been taken away. And so, as we look at the rest of the verse, she refuses to be comforted for her children. Why? Because they are no more. Think back to Genesis 35. Rachel's midwife sought to comfort her by saying, do not fear, for you have another son. Her newborn son was alive. He was healthy. Those were comforting words for Rachel as she lay dying. But here in Jeremiah 31, Rachel refuses to be comforted because the children are no more. So the picture here is one of mourning for the children of Israel who've been carried away into exile. Those who were once so prosperous and numerous are no more. The picture here is one of gloom and despair. The picture is one that merits great lamentation and mourning. But that's not where Jeremiah 31 concludes. While there is mourning and weeping over these children who are gone, this chapter will conclude with the promise of a new covenant. This chapter will conclude with hope. The people of God have broken the old covenant They've broken, they have not kept the covenant stipulations. They've wandered away from God's law. And now they're experiencing the fierce hand of God's judgment. So there's weeping, there's mourning, but then as we see in verse 31, look over there. Behold, the days are coming. So think, right now we have, we have this picture in 15 of mourning and weeping and in the midst of that there's a prophecy, behold the days are coming declares the Lord when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And this new covenant as we see in verse 32 will not be like the old covenant that was broken. And then in the middle of verse 33 God promises He says, I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. This is not to be equated with natural law. This is to be equated with a new heart that desires God's law, a new heart that desires to walk in God's ways. And furthermore, as we see at the end of verse 34, in this new covenant, God says, I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sins no more. Let's think about this for a moment. Jeremiah takes Rachel's sorrow from Genesis 35, and he applies it to the sorrow that the mothers would be, essentially, figuratively speaking, that they would, be, they would have as their children are gone. And the idea there, Israel's being taken into exile. So the sorrow, the bitter weeping that would have been taking place. So he uses Rachel, representing the mothers of Israel, weeping because their children are no more. But that's not where he concludes. God speaking through the prophet shows us that there's hope because God will establish a new covenant. And why will God establish a new covenant? Because God's people have too much Reuben in them, because God's people have too much Simeon and Levi in them, because God's people are wicked just like their fathers. So God will establish a new covenant. A new covenant in which sins are forgiven and hearts are changed. Apart from that, we would continue this cycle. God calling his people to himself, God's people turning away from him. That's why we must have a new heart. That's why the Spirit must work within us, because apart from that, we're like Reuben, we're like Simeon, we're like Levi, we're like Judah. We're just like them apart from God's working in the heart. So God promises a heart change here. If we were in Ezekiel, we would see that as well, that God promises to change the heart of man, but he promises also to forgive our iniquities. Now I'll turn over to Matthew 2. One more reference of Rachel. One more reference to this Jeremiah, well, a reference to Jeremiah. You might not have seen it. I don't think you would read Jeremiah 31 and honestly think that was pointing to this, but it is. So in verse 16... Herod, when he saw that he'd been tricked by the wise men, became furious. So the wise men have come to him. They've said, hey, we've heard that this king of the Jews was born. Do you know where he is? And Herod says, no, I don't, but come back to me and tell me so that I can go worship him. Well, God appears to the wise men and says, no, don't go back to him. And then Herod, he becomes furious. And look at and the rest of 16. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem. And in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. So seeking to kill the king of the Jews, he now has all the, the male babies, two and under, murdered. Time of great anguish and sorrow. And notice how Matthew depicts this sorrow Verse 17, then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they were no more. Rachel is used here to figuratively illustrate the deep grief and mourning as these baby boys were slaughtered by Herod. But as you know, that's not where the gospel of Matthew ends. Rachel illustrates this deep anguish, this suffering that we should see and feel as we read Matthew 2. But the gospel of Matthew is filled with the same hope that we have in the book of Jeremiah. Matthew presents us with the one who will establish the new covenant. Jeremiah promises the new covenant. Matthew presents us with the one who will establish the new covenant. Turn to Matthew 26. This is the last place we'll flip to. So here in 26 through 29, Jesus is instituting the Lord's Supper. We'll partake of the Lord's Supper next week. But here as he is instituting the Lord's Supper, I want you to notice just one thing he says. Something we know, something we've seen many times as we've read uh, even this very passage. But in verse 28, he's talking about the cup that we drink. And he says, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. This is the same covenant that Jeremiah spoke of. And now Jesus has come to establish this new covenant. So he says, as you drink this cup, drink of it. Drink of it, all of you, for this cup right here symbolizes the blood of the covenant. This new covenant. And the blood was poured out for many for the forgiveness of sin. So just think about this. So we mourn today, why? Because of sin. If there was no sin, there would be no death. With death, there's mourning. But with forgiveness of sin, our mourning is turned to joy. Why? Because we've been forgiven. We will be with God. We will be his people. So Jeremiah and Matthew, they both reference Rachel as one who is mourning over her children. Yet each book teaches us that God will establish a new covenant through Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and in Him our mornings turn to joy because we will be with Him. And so for those who are beneficiaries of the new covenant, death will no longer have the victory. Because Jesus defeated death. He took our sin upon himself. He died a sinner's death, although he was righteous. But he didn't merely die. He was raised up from the grave, defeating death in the process. Christ Jesus, God in the flesh, was raised up to newness of life, never to taste death again. He tasted death and defeated death that death might no longer reign in us. Right now we mourn, we weep when someone dies. Christ defeated death, so the second death has no hold on us. So one day our mourning will be turned into joy. As we learn from the scriptures, weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. With the new covenant, there is a new day when every tear will be wiped from your eyes. There will be a new day when death is no more, when death will be swallowed up forever There will be a new day when there will be no more pain. But as you know, right now we do experience pain. We experience death. We experience mourning. But we do not face those things as those who have no hope. For in Christ we have hope in life and in death. But our hope is not merely in the removal of pain and suffering. Our hope is that we will be gathered unto God who made us for himself, and he will gather us to himself by taking away our reproach. He is a God who is able to remove the reproach of Jacob and his sons, and he is a God who is able to remove your reproach as well as mine. Therefore, let us wait on him and look forward to the glorious, most joyful day when we will be with him. Let us look beyond ourselves with joyful hope. Puritan William Gurnall says, The reason why many poor souls have so little heat of joy in their hearts is they have so little light of gospel knowledge in their minds. Part of my burden in preaching is to remind you of the joy that you have in God. It's so easy for us to become distracted, and settle for things which do not satisfy. But as we learn from Psalm 1611, one of my favorite verses, in God's presence there is fullness of joy. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. Yet we're so quick to forget that truth. For those who know Christ, you have tasted that joy. Yet we're so quick to look for joy in the temporal instead of in the eternal one. So what about you? Where do you look for true joy? In things that are temporal? In things that are passing away? Like people or your stuff? Is that where you find eternal joy? Or where you seek eternal joy? Or do you look to God, the eternal one, in whom there is fullness of joy? And do you fight for joy with hopeful confidence? If you you are a Christian... Remember, the hope you have is God, the very God who wills what he wants and makes it happen. He's able and willing to do all that he says he will do. There is none like him. So if you were in Christ, he is your God. He is your hope. Your hope is the very God who turns mourning into joy. So I exhort you to stop living as if this world were it. Remember, this is not your home. We're passing through. We're sojourners. We've seen that over and over in the lives of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And since this world is not your home, I exhort you to live like it. Remember, the things of this world will not satisfy you. That's why you need more and more and more. That's why you can't get enough. That's why we're like kids who on Christmas get a toy or a present and then we already need more by the end of the day. So don't get too comfortable and forget whose you are. Too often we become dissatisfied with Christ and it seems as though our joy turns back into mourning. It's no wonder we live lives of despair and gloom. When you treasure the world more than you treasure Christ, what do you expect? When you are troubled more by losing the things of this world than you are of losing Christ, no wonder you experience such despair, even when times are really good. But there's hope. There's hope for you. There's hope for those of you who've lost sight of Christ and there's hope for those of you who are truly mourning the loss of a loved one. And there's hope for those of you who are truly going through sorrow and pain. In John 16, right before Jesus' arrest, he told his disciples, you have sorrow now, but I will see you again. And your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. When they see the resurrected Christ, what will they do? They will rejoice And this joy will not be taken away from them. We're reminded from John 16 that Christ is our joy. He turns sorrow into joy, but that's not all he says. He goes on to tell his disciples, until now you've asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. Sometimes we overcomplicate the Christian life. And we live as though we have no hope. What do I do? What do I do? Jesus says here, ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. Pray. Ask God for help. Ask God to fill you with great joy. Ask God to help you see and savor Jesus Christ who has come that we may have life. And life in him is a life of joy filled Hope. It's in Christ that we can walk through this world of suffering with great joy. It's in Christ that we can truly say, It is well with my soul. Because we know that there is coming a day when we will enter into the joy of our Master. Thomas Watson, to quote another Puritan, he says, Here joy enters into the saints. In heaven, we enter into joy. So here, joy enters us. In heaven, we enter into joy. So we can face trials with joyful hope because of the joy we have in Christ both in this age and in the age to come. But real quickly, for those of you who are rejecting Christ, who are looking to this world for ultimate, true, lasting joy, I call you to repent repent of your rebellion against God and turn to him you're rebelling against God who calls you to himself today you're ignoring him you're here today and you're hearing his voice and you hear the God who says come unto me and find rest for your souls come to me be delighted in me you hear him You hear him who calls and says, come to me and be satisfied. Stop laboring for that which does not satisfy and come to the living waters. Come and drink from the waters, the wells of living water, of Christ in whom there's eternal life. But yet you ignore that. And you think in your ignorance of that, you're fine. But there will come a day when the lord of glory will reveal his glory unto you and you will not be able to stand his you will not be able to stand in that day when the glory of the lord is revealed no one will stand except for those who are finding refuge in christ the only way that you will be prevented from being consumed by our god who is a consuming fire is to be hid in So your only hope is to turn to the Lord. Turn to the Lord of glory and be saved. And for all who turn to him, you can say along with the saints, it is well with my soul. For nothing can take Christ from you. Nothing can take the joy away from you that comes from knowing Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you in the name of Christ. Grateful for your word, thankful for your word, thankful for these truths that we see, thankful for the glimmers of hope that we have in the Old Testament, but then we see the full flowering of hope and joy in the new. Help us to live in light of this new covenant. Help us to enjoy living for you, serving you, walking in your ways, and help us not to forget. We do live in a day where there's sorrow, mourning. But help us to be able to sing that it is well, because we know you. Help us, I pray, in Jesus' name.